Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining on this episode of Great Connections. Today, we got a really special guest. I feel like I am a person who probably drives EVs more than just about anyone, except for one of our guests today. I would say it's probably Brandon Flash or Kyle Connor that maybe beats me annually in EV miles driven. And so I'm really excited to have Brandon Flash from the Brandon Flash YouTube channel on today to kind of talk with us about his insights about the EV industry, EV products, and EV charging in general. Um, this is really exciting to me because I've followed his channel and watched a lot of his episodes for quite a while. And this is the first time I've got to have him on our show, but he's also been someone that some of our listeners have really wanted to have on here as well. So I'm really excited. Thank you for joining us today, Brandon. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. In the rare chance that uh, anyone listening to this isn't familiar with what you do or your YouTube, uh, your YouTube channel, can you give us just kind of a quick little overview of what the Brandon Flash channel is all about and what you kind of try and help uh, viewers learn about EVs? Yeah, so I started the YouTube channel about three years ago during the COVID times that I was just wanting to drive and explore and get out and make videos. I was kind of inspired by Kyle from Out of Spec. And I was road tripping all around the country in my then 2015 Tesla Model S. And I put about 100,000 miles on that car in about 18 months, 60,000 of which were in 2020 alone. Uh, had free unlimited supercharging, hotels and everything were really cheap. I actually traveled full time for nine months, meaning I had no home anywhere. I wasn't living out of my Tesla, but I was going between places that I was living in my Tesla. So I was spending like a month or so in different Airbnbs, I was getting month-long Airbnb stays for roughly $1,000, which that's crazy, um, and kind of just exploring the whole country. It was kind of a finding myself period of sorts of my life, and I, that's when I started the YouTube channel. People started watching it. They were kind of living vicariously through it during times that most people weren't traveling, but I was traveling, albeit carefully. Uh and then as I kind of settled down in Charlotte, North Carolina, I got a day job in the charging industry. I continued making videos. These days, they're a little bit more about like vehicle reviews. I've had eight electric vehicles now, uh, as wow. well as a lot of charging infrastructure and things like that. So kind of educate people, educate those in the industry, and hopefully maybe make some consumer advice out of it. Well, that's great. And I think uh, just to kick it off, I mean, eight different electric vehicles is pretty impressive, especially since, what is it? It's really only been a decade since the Leaf and the Model S even came out. So I, I you got me beat there too. But what, uh, I guess for anyone listening who doesn't know, what are you driving these days? So right now I have a 2023 Tesla Model Y all-wheel drive. That's the official trim name of the Model Y that I have. And it's not a long range. It's the Standard range unofficially, but it's the Model Y that has the 4680 structural battery pack that has now been discontinued, but was made out of Austin, Texas. So yeah, I mean, you do have a bit of a rare car. I know it seems like overall it's been, uh, before that, I mean, the ones I was watching a lot of episodes of was when you had the Rivian, which mm -hmm. big fan of those. Uh, but it, it is really interesting to see the dichotomy. I mean, do you find it now more boring driving the Tesla just because obviously it's less powerful, but it just seems like you run into a lot less of the issues that uh, were pretty well consistent yeah. on uh, with your previous car. Yeah, uh, I made a tweet last night. I drove out to Greenville, South Carolina to go check out a Rolls Royce Spectre with Kyle Connor from Out of Spec. He had it for the evening uh, and we met at Electrify America station. So I charged there. 
and I do not miss that life one bit. Uh, <laughs> it took three attempts to get charging, which was like two minutes before or from, between arrival and actually charging. Whereas every single supercharger I've ever been to, aside from, I don't know, maybe a handful of times in the thousand plus times I've supercharged, you're, you arrive, you plug in, you're charging in less than 10 seconds. And you don't even think about it. I plug in, I walk away. I'll maybe check the app to make sure it's charging, mostly just to see how much time I have. But I know right. it's charging every time without issue. Yeah, I, I <laughs> wish them well. I wish it would work out finally. I, uh, I guess that was just last year. I did a road trip from here in Central Oregon out to uh, Sioux City, Iowa, of all places. But that was about, let's say, 1,600 miles. And uh, most of that was supercharging. And there was one location that I was like, you know what, I'm going to give it a try because it was a level two supercharger. So those kind of top out at 150. And there was recently an Electrify America. Uh, I think there was maybe four stalls, if that, but that had just been put in with the larger 350 kilowatt thing. And I had the adapter. So I was like, you know what, I'll mix it up. I'll give it a try. And I don't get me wrong. I, I think there's so many great EVs out there. And I know a lot of people that road trip in them. But this, I think I've tried it a few different times, but this was kind of the perfect example of it. It took me probably uh, close to 10 minutes. Like I remember even documenting it and I just couldn't believe how long it took me just to get the stupid app. And I already had like the pass and everything, but to get the uh, Electrify America charger stall just to start charging. And mm -hmm. it turned out two of them were broken I finally get it to charge. And of course I've been road tripping and I think I've been in the car for probably about three or four hours. And so like, I was so spoiled with the supercharger thing where it's just like, get out of the car, plug it in, run to the bathroom. And so here mm -hmm. I'm in the middle of, I think South Dakota at this point, I'm like, I have to go to the bathroom so badly. I'm probably just jumping all around, looking like an idiot, trying to get the stupid app thing. in. I plug it in, it finally starts when I was like, thank God I sprint over, make it to the bathroom. And then as I came out of the bathroom, I get a notification that the charging had stopped. And then I go back and I was like, are you kidding me? And then I go back and this randomly, this, uh, the site had now kind of depowered to only the chargers working at 50 kilowatts. Um, I have no idea what had happened, what went wrong. And I just said, screw it. And went over to the uh, level two, not even a mile away. So it really wasn't a big issue. And at that point with the charge curve, it didn't really matter anyway. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it was just like, every time I just try and give them the benefit of the doubt. And it looks like from some of the stuff I've watched from Kyle lately, maybe it's gone better. But yeah. uh, I am I am really excited that good or bad, they're going to <laughs> the charging standard so they can at least use superchargers uh, mm -hmm. and kind of get a lot of these gremlins making EVs just a lot easier for more people to live with. Um, I mean... I have a, my daily is actually a long range Model Y. And then mm -hmm. my other car of all things is a 1987 Land Rover Defender 90. And it okay. sucks. I mean, it goes through, it It, it sucks. Uh, I mean, actually it's, it's awesome. It's awesome in the fact that it's not fast, but it goes the same speed over everything. Uh, and then the downside is it goes through about as much gas and oil as like a small African country about every week. Mm -hmm. And so- we now mostly use it for going up the mountain or maybe hiking and uh, taking the dogs to the dog park. But it's so frustrating that if people want to drive EVs, it's got to be better than a gas station. And a gas station isn't that great of an experience, but I can tap, 
start filling. And I, I'll, I'll give, maybe it's not going to take be as quick, but it, at least getting it to start up, all I have to do is tap, open the thing, plug it in or plug it in, put the gas nozzle and it starts going. And mm-hmm. when you can't even just get the tap to go thing work, that to me is just like such a unfortunate user error, user experience that mm-hmm. is really hindering, uh, uh, more people from going to EVs, I think. And I really think if you want something to replace another technology, it doesn't have to be as good. It has to be better. And I really do hope the Tesla experience, whether that's through Tesla or just more cars start having like a plug and charge technology where you can just plug it in and walk away. That's really mm-hmm. going to be the thing that I think that catches on. But that's enough yeah. about me kind of uh, being long-winded. We're having you on this show. So let, let's kind of talk about some of the other things that I'd really like to kind of get your thoughts on because you have so much exposure to the actual DC fast charging infrastructure and like some of these kind of gremlins and surprises as to what like makes it a lot harder. I mean, I, I'm sure you'd follow it too. There's like the supercharge.info website among other websites that are always kind of listing permits of new uh, Mm -hmm. fast chargers going in all over the place. And We've had some other guests on and they've really talked about sometimes the financial and the incentive side to install, but I'm really interested to hear the other side of it, which is the physical construction, getting the approval from the utilities, some of the issues you run in with transformers. Um, Mm -hmm. Right now, what is it you're seeing from the physical implementation side that are kind of the biggest um, hindrances to getting more fast chargers online quickly? Uh, it's very regional and it also depends on the operator because some of the operators, they can mitigate a lot of the challenges with prior planning. So gotcha. there are across the industry, there's pretty heavy supply chain challenges still, not so much on the chargers themselves, but definitely on the distribution cabinets or switch gear, uh, the utility transformers, even just construction crews and just general labor availability. Uh, all of those things kind of have limiting factors, but you can mitigate them to different benefits, essentially. However, you still have a critical path, generally, of what your limiting factors are for any given site. And, uh, for example, like in the southeast region of the United States, it's pretty easy to build a charging station. Um, Of course, it depends on, like, the specific city and HJ or authority having jurisdiction. That's whoever's issuing the permit to be able to build it. Yeah. but given funding availability and equipment availability, I could take a site from picking that site and then having it built and open to the public probably in less than three months. However, if you try and oh. do that in California, you're probably looking at closer to two years. So and I think I know some of, of the reasons, but I'd love to hear your reasons why that there's such a big delta in that timeline. Yeah, the utilities are pretty challenging, but that's very varying, I would say. Uh, some utilities have transformers on hand, but may or may not be easy to work with on kind of the upfront tasks of actually working with them on the engineering to determine whether there's capacity available. Um, even just having them look at the engineer drawings from the firm that you're working with. So the operator that's actually building the site, they're usually having an engineering firm make the plans for the site overall. You can then make some assumptions about how the utility service will be built on that site. Uh, but you still have to work with the utility to actually confirm that, that that those assumptions are correct and that it works on their side because a lot of that data on capacity availability, uh, underground utilities, things like that, it's not public data, even though it maybe should be. And in some areas it is to some levels. Um, like, for example, Eversource in the Northeast, 
they actually have a, I don't know if it's public, but it's available to customers tool that you can check different circuits and different capacities in different areas. So if you're a Tesla or any other charge point operator that you're considering different sites, maybe even within two blocks of each other, you can see if one site has more capacity available or if there's capacity across the road, but not on the other side of the road, and you'd have to trench across. And that can be a make or break factor for a lot of those timelines and for cost of those installations. Interesting. So uh, yeah, you just put a lot out there, but it's, it's all really good. <laughs> and it's kind of funny you say that because uh, my wife is actually works in, um, she's a lawyer for a few different renewable energy firms. And so that's a common thing she has to deal with is transmission lines and also just making sure that the data is kind of aware of where there's actually capacity on the grid. And I know, I believe, I, I think it's actually might be a part of the IRA or another part of legislation that was recently passed that should actually be making that easier. How much clarity that adds, we will see <laughs> and how soon yeah. that happens. But with, um, with that, what do you think is the most, as kind of like someone who's worked in the industry and an EV driver, what do you think is the ideal uh, kind of charging experience or like what is kind of the ideal charging location? I, mean, I know in some of your videos, you'll, you've documented like the, some of the newer Tesla sites and the really mm -hmm. large ones. But what, when you think of like, when you're designing one, what, what do you see as kind of the ideal site and kind mm -hmm. of features that a lot of other uh, charge point operators should be really thinking about? Yeah, I think it kind of depends on what audience you're targeting. If you're looking at a corridor site, you want it to be as easy on and off the interstate as possible. Um, you want to be looking at access from that interstate. Proximity to the interstate is important, but if yeah. the interchange that you're feeding off of the interstate from, or if you only have return access one direction, it doesn't matter right. how close the interstate is if it's annoying as heck to get on and off from. Right. So you have to look kind of bigger picture, and that's why I think site visits are very important and not everyone does them. Uh, so you can actually experience what it would be like to go to that site to charge and then to actually continue on your route. Um, but for more urban or suburban sites, you still want to be off of kind of a main thoroughfare, but you also want to be near other things for people to do. So uh, along an interstate, uh, a truck stop, a convenience store, things like that are probably a really good fit. That may not be as good of a fit in an urban or suburban location. However, those C-store operators, um, generally not having truck stops in the middle of a city, uh, they often have good locations, but they may not have the space to build. So you're often looking at kind of like shopping complexes. You may have a staple like grocery store or Walmart, Target, something like that with other shops around it closer to a city center or in a suburban area that you can actually spend that half an hour, especially if you're like an apartment dweller or you're in multifamily or you just don't have home charging for whatever reason, you're probably going there relatively frequently. So the gas station may not be the place you want to be, but you may want to have your favorite, I don't know, fast casual restaurant. You may want to have your grocery store that you go to weekly anyway, and you can kind of form habits around that. Because for example, when I lived in Minnesota, there was actually a Hy-Vee, which is a kind of a regional uh, right. grocery store chain with also like quick restaurants inside of it. And they had a lot of superchargers at those. And it was actually a mile from my house in Minneapolis. And I'd already installed home charging, so I was good. But if that had opened like four months prior, or if I had known it was coming four months prior, I probably wouldn't have even bothered installing charging at home because I had free charging and it was a mile away. Mm -hmm. And 
I went there for grocery shopping anyway, so it wouldn't have been inconvenient at all to me. So I think those are kind of the archetypes that you're looking at for those locations and kind of site hosts. Yeah, that, that's kind of interesting. And I know professionally, you've worked uh, pretty closely with some of the traditional gas store chains. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing that that is still kind of an early days interest for some of these larger? I know the big announcement a week or two ago was kind of BP was buying $100 million worth of superchargers uh, from mm-hmm. Tesla. Are you seeing yep. at, that starting to change or is it still kind of some of the uh, more forward thinking players in that space that are kind of just putting their feet into adding chargers to their chains? Uh, I'd say it's pretty varied. Uh, and there's kind of a variety of strategies depending on the C-Store operator. So I actually worked for Circle K. I actually just ended my employment there. Announcement to come on that. Um, but I built site or I built charging stations at Circle K sites across North America. And Circle K is actually an operator in the Scandinavian markets and is the market leader right. there with I believe the latest number is around 1600 ports and close to 30 or 40 percent of the network in Norway has charging on it. So the no, it's, and it's, I've seen some of those sites. It's impressive how they've rolled them out and to what level that yeah. they're coming in. Now they even, I think, have some locations that they've actually gotten rid of the gas pumps altogether, I think, in Norway. And there are just yeah. uh, locations which is it's not the norm, but there are a couple, I believe, that are that way. Yeah. And newer stores that are being built with charging being more of the focus and liquid fuel being secondary essentially, because that's just the way that that market is shifting. And it's kind of the opposite of where we're at right now in the North American market, where liquid fuel is still the bread and butter and adding EV charging is kind of an auxiliary offer. It's kind of like offering um, vacuums or car wash, things like that, but with a little bit less compelling business case behind it. So that's kind of where some of that challenge comes in. But you also have like Travel Centers of America, which is owned by BP. They uh, partnered with Electrify Commercial, which is Electrify America's um, kind of third-party owned operated network branch. They also did the Tesla deal, as you mentioned, the $100 million worth of hardware. You have Pilot Flying J. They're partnering with EVgo Extend, which is EVgo's uh, third-party owned operated branch. Uh, and then you also have Love's Travel Stops, and they have their Trillium branch, so they're doing some stuff as well. Uh, so basically, all of the major C-Store operators are doing something, um, but it's to varying levels. You also have Wawa and Sheets, kind of regional right. East Coast players. They've partnered with both Electrify America and Tesla, primarily Tesla, uh, to add EV charging. And they all have a little bit different reasons, but... Owning and operating the network for the C-Store, I think, is probably the better long-term strategic play, but we'll see how it shakes out for players like Wawa and Sheets that they're just the site host for a third-party network. And and now, are you familiar with how those arrangements usually work? Is it just kind of a normal land lease that Tesla has for uh, when they do like a deal with the Sheets or a Wawa, where it's just they lease the land? Gotcha. Yeah, I've seen some comments from some of the executives on some of these different companies, and it seems to be pretty varying. I saw one that was a crazy case that the owner of the site host actually paid Tesla a dollar per vehicle that charged. Hmm. Can you imagine how crazy of a deal that was? But they probably didn't think anything of it, but they're probably still coming out ahead by extra sales as a result in the store. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I'm a big proponent of that. Um, 
after especially doing a couple of road trips this past year, there were so many that would be so much nicer if instead of it being even a quarter of a mile away. Um, and, it, and sometimes it's not even that. It's just kind of in a random large uh, either business yeah. park or parking lot. But having those um, kind of resources and being able to walk to them would be a huge difference in the road trip experience. Yeah, and I'm not saying I love going to gas stations. I don't think anyone truly does. Right. However, it's pretty hard to argue that it's a pretty compelling location. They have restrooms that are open 24-7 or very long hours. They have snacks. They have drinks. You're not walking a mile across a parking lot like you might at a Walmart. Well, miles of exaggeration, but you get my point. You're probably walking 50 feet to walk into the store, and they're usually at good locations. And I totally forgot to even mention Bucky's. Um, right. You didn't have any clothes on your road trip because you were a bit north. Fortunately, no. Yeah. No, actually, I still haven't been to one of those. I want to check those out. I've heard amazing things. But yeah, unfortunately, here in the Northwest, and I, I think a lot of the West Coast, I just really have not seen many. There's been a couple coincidental uh, charging locations at convenience stores and those kinds of setups. But it's usually kind of the outlier than the more common thing. And it seems like it's almost the inverse from, at least from what I've heard, kind of on the East coast and Southeast. Yeah. I can do an entire road trip from Maine to Florida and I could stop at super treasures that are only at uh, probably sheets or Wawa. Oh, that's a, yeah. Maybe a couple other C stores mixed in. Right. 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 But I mean, still, no, I mean, that's not even close to the case here. Uh, it's, you really have to, usually it's in kind of malls or shopping center parking lots for a lot of the stuff out mm-hmm. here. But um Let's take a little bit of a, uh, a change going from DC fast charging. I mean, what's interesting is earlier you were talking about that. We were talking about the data of what's available to site plan. Uh, can you share some of what the, I guess I'm always fascinated by the data that's actually created by the charging and what's actually being um, figured out as to like trying to recommend certain superchargers or chargers in a, in-car navigation system over others because of the data, knowing that there's X number of cars charging at a location. I mean, in your experience, have you, and maybe you can't show this, but have you just seen a, have you seen these uh, newer players in the space being more forward thinking about how to kind of approach that and sharing that with other auto manufacturers for road trip planning, or is that still kind of early days? I'm hearing some rumblings and I can't comment too much, but things are coming. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's at, to say it's been a big issue is pretty rare. And obviously, driving a Tesla, you kind of can kind of have the foresight better than others. But there have been a couple of issues where it wasn't updating fast enough. And um, I've pretty much given up on relying on the Electrify America app to be uh, reflective of who's actually using it and how available it is. But yeah, I mean, um, I think that's a huge problem having reliable charging data. It's more than yeah. like, traffic control aspect totally Tesla. Um, but i mean having reliable data to even base that on is step number one and uh, i truly don't understand how electrify america's app is so wrong so often because the charger should be communicating to their back end which should be communicating to the app and they should all match i it baffles me every time i see an issue there yeah i i mean coming from kind of the tech space no i i definitely agree i I just think they must have in one of, or maybe multiple points, it just only yeah. refreshes maybe every 30 minutes of that. And it just causes such an inaccurate display of what the current status is at these locations. 
um, going from DC fast charging to level two charging, I think there's been so many of these road trips I've personally taken lately where I haven't even had to uh, use a fast charger just because I can mm -hmm. kind of figure out, okay, that's about the ultimate, that's where the range ends and there's a brewery or there's a winery that happens yeah. to have like a level two charger. And there's been a couple of times where it didn't work out, but then, yeah, I just drive another 10 minutes and there's a supercharger or whatever. But now it's kind of in the point where it's becoming, in my opinion, a lot easier and more convenient in some ways. Cause I'll have, when I'm driving this far anyway, especially when I've got my wife and the dogs, we have to stop or get lunch. And I'm, I'm kind of curious on your thoughts as someone who's worked with a lot of these convenience stores of what you're seeing maybe in conversations with them. And then just your thoughts in general of like what a good level two uh, charging strategy is for uh, people who have these, uh, whether they be convenience stores or like a brewery or something where you can maybe want to spend a little more time and you're not in such a rush to go of what, what the uh, gap is in that space and how level two charging can kind of flourish more. Yeah, level two is not really in my realm a ton, um, but I am a pretty average user of it. I'm just okay. not as involved in level two deployments. I'm more on the DC fast Fair. charging side. Uh, realistically, level two doesn't make any sense at a convenience store. Yeah. It's a total waste of space. Like yeah. convenience stores, space is at such a premium. You need to be, make the most of every stall and have the fastest turnover possible. You don't want someone sitting there eight hours. Like, you know, that, that's the entire system. Not to interrupt you, but that is a great question then. What is What do you think is the minimum a fast charger should be at a convenience store? Uh, probably 150 kilowatts. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, plus or minus a bit. I mean, depending on the specific case, you might have a C store that's part of like a little bit of a shopping complex kind of thing that you may want a little bit slower. Um, otherwise, you may have 150 kilowatt that may have two ports. And that could be beneficial still, even if it power shares. So, I yeah. mean, there's definitely some some room for flexibility depending on the specific use case. But generally, if you're charging in a C store, you want to be charging and moving on as quickly as you can. Totally. And I, I kind of agree with you. Like, I, I'm of the mindset. Uh, I realize there's a bunch of factors that go into this. And a big one is site uh, resource availability and the cost. But yeah, I'm mm -hmm. kind of on the mindset. It's like, I think at the very least, uh, it should be 150 kilowatt, if not closer to 200 or more to at least future-proof uh, mm -hmm. some of these locations more. There's uh, here, actually, between Washington, Oregon, and California, there's this thing made actually over a decade ago called the West Coast Electric Highway. And it's it yeah. uh, goes through some really beautiful areas. It's a fun little drive, but most of it was uh, Chatamo. And then they recently updated it a couple of years ago to be CCS. And even then, uh, the Chatamo, I think, was maybe it went up to 60 kilowatts. But even with these updates, they put in whole, uh, completely new chargers and they mm -hmm. had CCS. I think all of them have CCS with a Chatamo port on it, but they can only charge one at a time. Uh, even then, that was still the same 60 kilowatts. And mm -hmm. I've just kind of found that to be, in my opinion, I mean, I guess if you already have kind of the site power and stuff going there and that's what you're going to do, that's what you got to do. It's better than nothing. But at that point, I just think it's not really well future-proofed and it just isn't able to, with so many other alternatives out there. And like, it's so close to a good level two charger at 11 kilowatts, if you're going to be somewhere for an hour uh, versus you're going to almost have to be at one of these for an hour anyway, especially if you're low that it, to me, I, yeah. I would love to be proven wrong or tell me I'm wrong, but to me, it just seems like it's gotta be at least 150 or 180 or 
I'd like to yeah. see it closer to 200 with so many of the newer, especially the big uh, EV pickups. Yeah, I mean, realistically, there's very diminishing returns the higher power level you get. The real benefit of doing a higher power charger is when you have dual output, because yeah. then you're getting that 150 plus to two vehicles simultaneously. Realistically, unless the site is pretty highly utilized, you're probably going to be getting the max power on one output pretty often, right. except if the site's very busy. Um, but on sites like you mentioned, I believe EVCS bought out that network, if I remember That's correctly. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I've used some of those in my old Tesla, actually. But they have the 50 kilowatt, and then they have a level two right next to it. Right. So it's right. every single one of them are like that. It's and a there's a couple of times where I can never even get the, uh, e, uh, the main, I think there's been one time where it was a, the Chatamo and then used the adapter. And then another time when it was the CCS, there's been times where those were just busted and I used the level two. And then there were a couple of yeah. times where I just tried using them for fun. I didn't really need it, but I was going to be parked there anyway. And the software and trying to get them all to communicate was such a pain in the ass mm -hmm. that I just said, screw it. And plugged yeah. into the level two, which was free and it was better than nothing. And it was kind of the point where it's just like kind of going back to the conversation earlier. It's like the user experience just really has to be simplified. And um, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm being overzealous about it, but someone who's going to come from working with like a lot of mobile, mobile first companies, like the apps for some of these are just so awful. And a lot of the time they're in places where there isn't great cell connection. So if you have to download it and do all this stuff, it is such a pain in the butt. And even, um, uh, the summer before this most recent one, I did a road trip through the UK and rented a model three. And every time I went off, there was some sort of app you had to download and it was crazy too. Cause you actually had to, for a couple of them, you had to have a, uh, UK based phone number. And if yep, you didn't I experienced that in Norway as well. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I'm complaining again, but, yeah. uh, go, I think oh, those go 50 kilowatt sites. I think those are a good application for a battery-based system as the replacement because then you can actually use that existing grid connection and hopefully get higher power output. So something like a free wire, there's the Adztech dispenser-based system. Um, there's some other battery-based systems that could make sense. But the challenge with those systems is you, you can't have too high of utilization or right. then that impacts the customer experience as well. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm all for that. I, I agree with you. I think that is a really good solution for those sites. Um, mm -hmm. I've kind of heard mixed things on the actual cost to do that upgrade still that it's kind of like, okay, maybe it's worth it just to do the uh, mm -hmm. upgrade the site anyway. But um, yeah, I, I think that's a really good alternative solution. And for a lot of these, especially the EVCS sites, they're, they're more often than not, not being used. There's definitely like during the weekends I'd drive by them and there would be a line of people. And I was like, well, that's also a terrible EV ownership experience. Um, but vast majority of the time you drive out and there's no one there. And so having something like that where you can charge it, having a battery backup system where it can give off a lot more power and then kind of slowly charge up over time, I think I would have liked to have seen that when they did these upgrades. But I think that's better. also a catch 22 because if it was higher power, it'd probably be higher utilized because people would actually use it because it would be useful to them. Whereas what? otherwise exactly. they would maybe right. not use it if it's 50 kilowatt and they have a 150 kilowatt option otherwise, but that 50 kilowatt could be a better location potentially. I, I think, I think you're right. I think there's a couple of places here in Oregon, especially where they are, that are pretty damn remote that there isn't anything for quite a while. <laughs> Uh, gas yeah. station included, but um, 
I, I think you're right. For a lot of them, that is unfortunate. That's kind of like, yeah, the catch twenty two is like the more you start using theory, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I think that theory's kind of been tested, and now they have come, and you haven't. There hasn't been more built to catch up with said demand. But kind of going back to the level two charging, it sounded like there were a couple of things you had wanted to mention just from your own experience as a EV driver. Yeah, so I think level two is pretty fantastic at destinations, uh, generally somewhere that you're going to be all day, somewhere that you're going to be overnight. Uh, so hotels, offices, um, maybe gyms potentially, um, movie theaters, things like that. Those are the places that you really want to be spending. I'd say the threshold is somewhere around the two to three hours or longer that level two actually is beneficial. Any less than that, I personally find it useless, and I probably won't even bother plugging in unless it's free and or very convenient parking because it's just a waste of time. You might get 10% if you're there for an hour. And See, I, I push back on that. If you, if Now, it depends. Like If it's like a six kilowatt or less, that thing's pointless. And this yeah. actually goes to one of my uh, other ideas is like if you have a level two, obviously, there's all sorts of site locations, but... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you have a level two and you can put out 11 kilowatts, that's great. And I think yeah. if you're there for an hour, that's pretty good. And there's quite a few wineries and some of the breweries here in Oregon that have those. And I think at that mm-hmm. point, it's right. But unless you're doing overnight at a hotel, I think six kilowatts even is like not enough. And that's coming from someone who drives a Tesla Model Y, one of the more efficient cars. Like I can't imagine having the Rivian or something like that where it's like, what is that? Yeah, yeah, you're right. You might add maybe 10% overnight kind of stuff. And that really is, I think, once again, kind of an example and maybe not future proofing, but I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't quite that bad in the Rivian, but it was pretty common. <laughs> True. If I roll into a hotel at, call it 10% overnight or at like 10, 11 p.m., and I'm trying to leave at 7, 8 a.m. the following morning, which is a pretty common thing for me on a road trip if I'm just trying to pound sure. down a mile. Yeah, I might only gain fifty percent overnight on a six kilowatt, and that's not that's that not bad. Useful. I mean, yeah, it's not bad, and it's it is right. helpful, but it didn't really. It's not like I can skip the next three DC fast right. chargers. I'm probably still going to the next one, right? Um, and I probably only gained 100, 150 miles of range overnight, which is not that great. Realistically, I think level two will go away, aside from overnight really? stops or offices. I think we're going to see a lot more low power DC as Fair. the where it becomes a lot less expensive. So that's, I think that's... we're starting to see some new entrants into that space with more compact and less expensive hardware. And it's actually going to be to some extent cheaper to install because you can have a 480 volt feed instead of 208. And you're then not limited by the vehicle's onboard charger because you can install a 19 kilowatt AC level two unit, right. 80 amps, but that's useless unless you have an F-150 Lightning, older Tesla or a Lucid. No, that that's a, that's a great point everything too. Everything else is forty eight amps. Whereas if you have low power DC, you're going to probably get full power on any vehicle. That that's no, I agree with you. I mean, one of the things I've even uh, and I want to ask you about this because you might know about in Europe. Obviously, they can they have three phase level two, and that's mm-hmm. pretty sweet. Where it's like closer to twenty two kilowatts, um, and we can't do that in the U.S even if you set it up at a commercial site because of the, is it a limitation of the car or is it a limitation of the charger or both, do you know? 
everything. So That's I, I could thought. spend an hour ranting about yeah. the U.S. should have used Type 2 and CCS2 and why we wouldn't have the NAC CCS conversation we're having this day or these right, days right. In the if we had done that. Uh, but I think it was a huge mistake not going with Type 2 or CCS Type 2 in North America because even though three-phase isn't available at households in North America, at least not typically, right. um, three-phase power is available at pretty much every commercial property everywhere in North America. Maybe not right. 100%, but easily 80% plus. And if you have that 208-volt three-phase, you're going to be getting more power than charging at, say, 30 amps at 208 three-phase. Um, I'm not doing the math here on video, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. No, I know. It always throws me off, too, with power. that one. And I think another thing that was a miss with uh, the North American standard is not allowing either 277 volt input or 480 volt input, because we're limited to a max of 250 volts on input or 240 plus or minus 10% for the standard of J1772 or type two or type one, which is what's right. used everywhere in North America. And that's the same goes for NACs. So that's not even a NACs versus J1772 thing. That is just a across the board, North America, we don't support higher than 240-ish volts, which is right. really just the same because that actually makes it a lot more complicated to add AC charging at a DC fast charging site because most DC fast charging sites <laughs> right. are fed at a 480 three-phase service. And you can easily get 277 volt, but that's outside of the range. You could easily yeah. get 480 volt from the three-phase power, because 277 is phase to neutral um, and 480 is line to line. But if you want to install AC charging at a DC fast charging site that has a 480 service, you actually have to use a step-down transformer, which just adds a whole new layer of right. complexity and cost. And then you also need a se separate distribution panel for that to have multiple. Whereas if you just allowed 277 or 480, you could just have basically mini breakers in the same distribution panel as your 200, 300, 600 amp breakers going to those DC fast chargers. And that would just make things way easier. Right. And that's, that's actually a good call out. Um, obviously I was kind of talking about the residential use case of it at first, but no, yeah. you're spot on that. Um, that's something I don't think does get enough uh, attention of having that higher voltage of just doing the two seven um, because that would kind of mitigate a lot of these issues. And even, um, cause this, this is, I mean, you're right. This could easily be another podcast. Cause this is something I talk to people all about. Um, well, I am all for vehicle to load stuff. Uh, most people don't realize this is kind of some of the similar issues you start getting into with vehicle mm -hmm. to load because of how residential panels are set up that the vast majority just can't handle that sort of system and require pretty ex expensive. Um, panel upgrades so they can have some sort of vehicle to load plug-in um, and so the idea of more cars having vehicle uh, vehicle to load is great but it's really not as cost effective it's not something you can just plug into the wall and when the power goes out and it just automatically works it's a pretty complicated process that i, I it, and as you say when you start going the through phase especially on the commercial side here domestically that actually starts making things a lot less complicated but yeah, and um, you run smaller wires as a result exactly. with because wire is sized based on current, not based on voltage. So the higher voltage you have, the less current you can have for the same power, or the more power you can have on the same current. Right. No, and that's I mean that's a whole nother <laughs> chapter of EV nerdum that I'm all about and dealing with um 
it's it's funny i guess i brought it up so i'll say it uh the land rover defender we have it's a 3.9 liter v8 love the thing but like i said goes through gas like crazy and so i'm actually in the process of i i still i'm still getting all the ports and getting uh, getting all the parts and stuff but looking at actually working with this uh team and guy that'll actually be on the podcast in a couple of weeks out of the UK that's now built a kit for essentially doing electric conversion um, defenders. And actually, I think he might've been on uh, Kyle Connors thing. It's for a company called Felton out of uh, the UK that um, him and a bunch of the team were just at SEMA. So it's, it's a, it, that's a whole nother thing. But once you start getting into the uh, wire sizes and what you can do to kind of hack around getting some mm-hmm. of the smaller sizes here and there, that that's a huge thing for all of those. And I, um, this is such a nerdy thing, but I'm sure you probably were fascinated by it too. <laughs> I was so excited when Tesla announced that they're, hopefully we'll see how soon, I think it's with the Cybertruck, they're going to a 48 volt, uh, low voltage system, uh, mm-hmm. because that will do a lot, not just for weight, but really for uh, the actual loads and uh, energy used internally on the car systems, and then allow them to, actually have much more access to power to do some really cool stuff that you just can't do on the 12 volt system. Um, Yeah. A lot of, a lot of auto OEMs have kind of switched to 48 volt systems, not necessarily for the entire accessory system, but a lot of them have like uh, they'll have suspension systems or power steering or kind of auxiliary systems that are higher power on a 48 volt bus versus a 12 volt bus, or you can have a mild hybrid system that way as well. Right, right, right. And that that's that's also another common way to use the mild hybrid. But even then, you actually, there's a huge improvement by just going to a fully uh, 48 volt system. Um, mm-hmm. The issue obviously is then getting the suppliers to build it at that rate. But I, I think that's actually a pretty underrated um, advance that will make more EVs use less power one, but two, then give you access and make it a lot easier to do some really cool suspension or other tech um, and have all the power you need to do that more, but that's a whole nother discussion, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, given your exposure to this professionally on YouTube, socially, social media wise, what are some of the most uh, common, I guess, uh, questions that you're still seeing or like, you're just surprised, like we still have, we're still dealing with this. People still have questions or misconceptions about EVs and charging in general. I, and I, I just be curious to hear that from you because of your role as an EV yeah. driver, but also being on the professional side of it. Yeah, I've mostly tuned it out at this point because <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of people that specialize in kind of the entry level EV knowledge. I mean, there's Tom yeah. on the charger side of things. True, I mean, There's true. plenty of YouTubers that have kind of the more basic stuff. And realistically, I'm kind of appealing to the nerds a little bit. and. I just don't realistically have the patience for it, frankly. Um, But I think the most common thing that I see is that people still seem to think that batteries are going to need to be replaced. Uh, Some people as soon as every couple of years to what happens in 15 years when you need a new battery. I've personally owned two Teslas to 200,000 miles, original battery, original driving. It's it's a total non-issue. And the data shows that as well. And I mean, sure, there might be occasional failures that happen potentially outside of warranty, and they probably get a lot of press because it's that uncommon and because right. they see a large bill and it gets clicked. But I worked in the automotive service industry actually for quite a few years before I came into the EV world. And the amount of times that I quoted people $10,000 plus for an engine replacement or 
$5,000 plus for a transmission replacement. Right. Crazy. And I mean, that's how much a remanufactured or a new battery is and, or a drive unit. And I mean, they're just as uncommon. If In fact, the battery or drive unit failure is probably a lot less common than those engine and transmission replacements. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I mean, just inherently when you have so much less uh, moving parts for one, but two, yeah. uh, heat transfer and all this stuff, like inherently it's just going to be exposed to less uh degradation we're not even degradation but essentially less damaging uh lifetime of use with um now i, I am kind of curious on the professional side of stuff i'm sure you yeah. probably do get similar questions but and but obviously on social media so it's probably a little more malicious it's a little more idiotic yeah. dare i say even uh yeah. but with the professional I would assume a lot of the time it's not so much David as it is just genuine because there is so much misinformation, bad info on the stuff. Like you said, just it's always the bad news that kind of gets caught up in the headlines. What what are some of the questions maybe you're seeing from like site uh, hosts when you're putting in a DC fast charger or you're starting to get that, that like you think that there's still kind of education that needs to be done or just kind of misperceptions that um, are probably well-intended, but um, just kind of going into it, they they don't know better. Yeah. I mean, I think being on the fuel retail side of the business, um, I sure. see people think that you can drive away with the cable because that happens so frequently with gas pumps. Uh, you can't do that in EV. It's right, physically right. impossible. If the cable is plugged into a vehicle, even if there's no power flowing, you still can't drive away. It is part of the spec that if there's a cable in the charge port, you cannot drive. And if somehow you can, well, you have much bigger problems. Right, right. Uh, another thing I see is kind of the fire risk. A lot of people mm. overblow the risk of fire. Or while well intentioned, some people seem to think, well, you should have a fire extinguisher right next to the charger. It's like, if you need a fire <laughs> extinguisher, well, that fire extinguisher is not doing anything. Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's the same with a gas station. If you think that little dinky thing's going to put out a fire at a pedestal that's uh, caught on fire on a car. Uh, yeah gas station or it EV charger. it's very different than a ev like yeah. that actually could be effective if used properly whereas if an ev is on fire unless you like somehow caught your interior on fire from a cigarette or i don't know right 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 completely Fair. unrelated to it being an ev that if it's an ev related fire that fire extinguisher is doing absolutely nothing um another thing i see is just kind of the general safety around it and people think that like that it's a hazard to even touch the handle because there's high voltage there. There's no power flowing until it's communicated with the vehicle. You could dunk a charge handle into a bucket of water and then charge a vehicle on it. And I mean, you should probably let it dry a little bit or shake it out first, but it will be totally fine. So I think just kind of the general misconceptions around safety and just like hazards that it may pose, even though it's actually much safer than a gas car. So where do you think that the these misperceptions can be answered? Is this on the role of the OEMs? Is this on the role of uh, a Circle K or someone who is trying to get more people to charge at their locations? I think people just need to actually look for real information and not just believe the first thing they hear. Yeah, that's I not going to happen. Any one role, but <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I, I think you're 100% right. That's what should happen and is the, the right intention. Um, but I, I've got a couple of buddies. They're 
I wouldn't say always the most intelligent, but they're halfway smart enough guys that they are always yeah. sending me the shit they see on Instagram. They're like, oh, is this really a thing? Especially around EVs. I'm like, no, it's not. And it's, and you like, if you even, uh, I, I will say uh, as controversial, it is one of the things I love about Twitter now is the community notes because you will see someone who like shows a video of some car and friends like, oh, it's another damn EV. And then you can actually see the note on it. That's like, no, this was a gas car that got in an accident and blew up. It's not. Yeah just having some ability to kind of find that uh, exactly exactly the fact from fiction element to it so um <laughs> i guess that we don't know hopefully someone will figure that out yeah. I, i'm not really in the education space i'm more in the doing space so i'll leave yeah. it to the educators to figure that out i like to think what we do on this podcast is mildly educational but yeah. i think if you're already listening to it you're smart enough or at least already kind of down the pipeline enough in the EV space that you kind of realize the fact from fiction. So I'm not sure as much as I'd hope to think we're making a difference. I don't know if we're doing that today, but with, uh, with all of this, where, where do you kind of see in a few years from now, EV batteries and EV charging really headed? Do you see it being okay? Now EV batteries are going up to 400 kilowatts and can charge at that rate. Or do you think it's just going to be more, the that maybe the rate's not improved, but the infrastructure is just going to be more common or maybe a mixture of both. I think a mixture of both. And I think the best way to figure that out is literally just looking at the markets that are five years ahead of us. If you look at Norway, you look at Europe as a whole, you look at China, uh, China has EVs that are charging at crazy high rates. They're getting 10 minute charges, 400 kilowatts plus. Um, you look at Norway, there's charging stations everywhere. You might have a travel plaza off of a um, Euro road that has three different charging providers at that one travel plaza so that you have different options. Um, so it's kind of a mix of better infrastructure, better batteries, but realistically, we just need more. It's not so much that, I mean, it has to be better and reliable, but we just need more first. And I think there's some like people that think, we should not be doing it until it's perfect, but actually we need to be doing everything today and get as much infrastructure in the ground as possible because it's a lot easier to replace hardware that's not good than it is to build it from scratch. Um, so you look at, for example, those EVCS sites that we yeah. talked about earlier. I know you were that. Sites, it's a lot easier to replace those than it is to build those from scratch because you already for have sure. power on the site. And it's, I mean, it could be a one week, two week project maybe even a month worst case scenario to completely redo a site that already has power to it versus if you had to start from scratch, well, you first have to find a site. If you're most operators that don't have real estate already, you don't have to work with the utility to make sure there's even power there. Uh, and then you have to build the site from nothing. And that's right. a lot more involved than if you have to modify or if you planned appropriately, hopefully you don't even have to modify that site to upgrade it. And I think there's a lot of ways that that can be done. I'm not seeing it a ton in North America, but if you look at a lot of European sites, the way that they're building the sites is actually very future-proof. And in a lot of cases, they can swap hardware without breaking any concrete or running any additional conduits. That is very nice. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. We need to get <laughs> um, there here. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, with that, what do you think would be a motivating factor or what do you think would what do you think is that kind of x variable that's missing to kind of help accelerate the rollout and increase uh infrastructure around uh, the us 
I think there were two two key things in the past that kind of held it back. Um, Tesla having a different port than everyone else uh, and kind of establishing themselves as a front runner, I think actually held back other potential operators from deploying infrastructure because they saw that Tesla was leading the way so much, they didn't want to be in their shadow. Uh, and they also, they didn't have any other vehicles to support until two, three years ago. Realistically, even 18 months right. ago, we didn't have half the non-Tesla EVs that we have today. So what was the motivation for these other operators to deploy infrastructure? Because they couldn't deploy charging that supported Teslas, which was the majority of the market until very recently and still is the majority of the market. Or when I say majority of the market previously, right. as far as vehicles available, they're still definitely the majority as far as vehicles sold. sold. Yeah. Um, but now that we're finally converging onto one port standard with NACs, I think that's going to help accelerate things. But there's also the other factor of Electrify America that they kind of became the de facto national provider of charging infrastructure right. because of a government settlement. So it was for all the wrong incentives. And I think that also blocked a lot of other would-be operators from entering the space because why would they want to compete with someone that essentially has a check that's $2 billion that they are forced to spend they have no reason to do it in any way that makes economic sense. They're not doing it because of a business case. They're doing it because they have no choice but to spend this money building this. And if the, all these OEMs have partnership deals with Electrify America, well, who's going to be charging? If you can't get Teslas, if you have all these OEMs with charging deals with Electrify America that they're getting free or discounted charging, how much of that pie is left? And I think we need to do away with the free charging deals, discounted charging or free charging for an X amount of kilowatt hour. I think actually like 250 to maybe even a thousand kilowatt hour free is kind of a good thing. Um, Cause a lot of people might buy an EV. They may not have home charging right away. And they just need that as a stopgap or to just try it out or their first couple road trips may be free. Right. But to have unlimited free charging yeah. is just, it just breaks the economics of all of it. And that is actually blocking other operators from getting into the space. That's interesting. And one of the other things uh, on a recent episode, we had Lauren McDonald from EV Adoption on, and he was kind of yeah. talking about the well-intentioned inverse effect of all these NEVI funds, where mm -hmm. instead of like putting stuff in the ground, they want to kind of wait till they get the money from the NEVI funds to then put the stuff in. And that's also kind of in some ways accelerated how Tesla's kind of just, if they get, they're kind of one that they're, they're most, uh, their focus is moving fast. So if they can get government funds, great. But if the funds are going to slow them from putting in an installation, they're just going to put the installation in and go the next thing. Um, mm -hmm. And it was kind of interesting talking to him with what we've seen with the Nevi funds, how it's just taken longer to get that rolled out in general, but how it's also mm -hmm. kind of had the negative short-term effect of a lot of these operators are like, well, we want to do it, but if we can get another $250,000, we're probably going to hold off and uh, wait till that's approved, at least for so many of these sites that we can do that for. So, yeah, I think, I'm, yeah, Gordon is definitely the expert in this space. Yeah. I've talked to him many times. Um, no, he was a great guest to have on. Yeah. And I'm fortunate that I worked for an employer that didn't have that philosophy. We were full steam ahead, build the sites, but also right. going for Nevi. Um, but I think that is happening in the market, unfortunately. It looks like Pilot Flying J is 
maybe not doing that as much. They may have had that strategy initially, but it looks like they're building a lot of sites right now, even in areas that they weren't awarded NEVI funding. That's great. So I think they, they probably kind of just said, screw it, it's taking too long, let's just build them anyway. Yeah. And I think we're kind of at that point that a lot of these operators need to be considering that move because NEVI is just moving so slowly. And it's, it is putting a bottleneck on the overall industry, but it's also a challenge because the some of the equipment requirements also made it pretty challenging to actually have good equipment. So hopefully, as a lot of these new entrants into the market are coming, that that improves. Yeah, and actually that reminded me, I wanted to check where some of these pilot flying J locations were, because I remember the most, okay, they've got some at least along I-5. But yeah, the vast majority looks like it's east of the Mississippi. I'm uh, just looking at this map right now where, yeah, I mean, Montana. Yeah, there's quite a few states in west of the Mississippi that, that don't even have any in there. And most of it's in California. There's one maybe in Washington, but it looks like here in Oregon, it's a few across yeah. I-5 and I-84. But um, yeah, that's that's what's been really interesting. Like even following what uh, Circle K was done on, I think it looked like there's just more of those in general on the East Coast, but uh, yeah. it's been kind of surprising. And I think some of that probably goes back to what you're talking about, the utilities and the, some of the regulation out here that's kind of slowed down from seeing more of them on the West Coast lately. Yeah, it can be pretty challenging to deploy things uh, west of the Mississippi. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I, I really... Some of the most states... Uh, that really want to push EV adoption, they're doing quite the opposite as far as EV infrastructure because they also have a lot of other policies that are a little less uh, laissez-faire economics of actually letting things happen. I could not agree with you more, Brandon. I will <laughs> leave it at that. Um, I just want to say, first, thank you so much for coming on today. But second, um, I, I guess we pretty much answered this, but one of the things I always ask people who come on here is just if they, um, what in their mind, whether it be government, private business, what mm -hmm. do you think could, uh, would you like to see to help accelerate the rollout of more EVs? More EVs or more EV charging? Uh, they kind of go hand in hand. They do. Let, let's say, let's say EVs. I think the vehicles just need to speak for themselves. Um, I think right now we're in a weird holding pattern between CCS vehicles and NACS vehicles, uh, especially being so close to 2024. That I think there yeah. are people that are waiting or at least waiting for the CCS vehicles to be discounted. So I think it, we really just need to make it very straightforward for consumers to buy them and dealers need to get out of the way because dealers, I think, are also a huge holding back uh, thing from people buying EVs because... Dealers have no incentive to sell an EV. They're making less on service. They're probably making less selling warranties um, because there's less things that fail. There's less maintenance. And the vehicles are actually pretty fantastic. The charging is just not there. That's kind of the chicken and egg scenario as well. Right. And then you have dealers that are perpetuating a lot of these myths. Um, some of the myths that we talked about earlier, because right. a lot of these consumers, they, they go into a dealership thinking that the dealership is going to be the experts, but that might be a false thing. I don't think in a lot of cases, the dealers are the expert on EVs or they might make it seem that they are, but they're saying partial truths or and potentially I, been complete falsehoods. For sure. And I, I will say kind of in defense of dealerships, I, I guess, 
uh, <laughs> I have had experiences when I've bought combustion engine vehicles. And mm -hmm. if it wasn't for the fact, I guess maybe this isn't actually in their defense. If it wasn't for how much I knew about the car and what I was trying to get, um, I knew usually more about that or the reason I wanted that car specifically than the salesperson. And unfortunately, I think what it goes to is maybe not always education, but just incentives. Kind of like mm -hmm. what you're talking about. It's like they're incentivized to sell a car. And for a lot of them, it's probably quicker and easier to sell a combustion engine than all mm -hmm. of the, what about this ands and ifs about uh, buying an EV, especially with the EV charging. Uh, I think, I, I am just curious real quickly, is there anything when you asked about EVs or EV charging, is there anything we haven't said about EV charging that you would like to see change? Uh, I think you need to incentivize operational goals versus just deploying more chargers because if yeah, you're funding, good, call. good point. Just deploying more chargers, well, that's what people are going to do, and that's what they're going to do to get more money, and they're not going to look at the existing chargers. Um, it, it's very important that you have funding available on both, or that you you focus on the operators that actually have the incentive to develop charging infrastructure that works and is reliable and they're in it for the long term, not just because they see dollar signs of NEVI programs. Um, you look at some of these award lists from NEVI programs and you're like, who's that? Right. Um, and you're like, as someone in this industry, if I'm asking who's that on a NEVI award list, that should be raising all sorts of red flags. <laughs> if I don't know who that operator is, when it's literally my job to know this industry. <laughs> Right. And, but yeah, there's definitely some that, questions around long-term sustainability of that, of those choices. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, the solar industry. I'm not an expert on the solar industry, but I know at least early on, there were a lot of people that would build solar farms through an LLC. They'd sell it to another LLC. They'd sell it to another LLC, but that initial LLC got a whole bunch of funding to build it. But then 15 years later, it's like, who actually owns this? Who's responsible for this as it's towards its end of life? Uh, yeah. It's less operational on solar because it hopefully either works or it doesn't for the most part, other than right. maybe some failures here and there. And it's not, you're not impacting consumers at that point. However, it's kind of a similar thing of if you just created an LLC to get funding through the NEVI program or even any other program, but then maybe you sell that to another entity five years from now after you've built a portfolio and then five years later, it sells again. And then suddenly you're at the end of the NEVI program and you just have all these stranded assets. Yeah, I I, I guess I'll, I'll just kind of say, I actually worked in the solar industry for quite a while. It's uh, really starting about a decade ago. Um, mm -hmm. And at, around that time, the state of Oregon, really all along the West Coast, but the state of Oregon especially had some of the best funds to mm -hmm. start a solar or to do install solar. And it was very well intended. Uh, but this kind of goes to the epitome of what we were talking about earlier of the intentions and the realities, but essentially the, the state was paying so much money uh, for these installations, whether it be commercial or residential, that a lot of residential clients and specifically electricians saw what was going on. And they're like, hell, I'm gonna become a residential electrician uh, photovoltaic <laughs> installer, which was kind of the intention. But um, here in Oregon, we get seasons and especially in the Portland area, they get a lot of rain. And you have these electricians who knew the electrical side, great, but we're putting all these uh, penetrations into people's homes and it start raining and they notice, hey, what's going on? And unfortunately, pretty quickly, a lot of these electricians figured out there's also a second part of 
this that you need to know and have maybe a working with a good roofer or something like that has a huge uh, downstream impact. And pretty quickly, quite a few either had to file for bankruptcy or many other kind of unfortunate outcomes because of that. But um, yeah, that that's kind of my fun little quip about those unintended, well-intended, the old path, uh, highway to hell is paved with good intentions kind of sites, uh, types of stories. Yeah, but I um, yeah, uh, well, I just want to say thanks so much, Brandon, for being on once again. Uh, it's been really great to finally talk with you and talk about uh, especially EV charging and the whole space. And we could have easily talked for another couple hours, but I realize it's getting late for you. So I want to let you get going and uh, we'll just have to have the conversation uh, continue another time. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. You guys can find me at Brandon Flash on YouTube, X or Twitter. I'm still not used to saying <laughs> X. That's a terrible name for a platform, but I'll digress. But yeah. I'm everywhere there and I talk about charging infrastructure, EVs on all of them. Yeah, and if anyone that's listening, like I said, if you're not already following Brandon, cannot recommend his uh, YouTube page and I'll have links in that to the podcast as well. Very fascinating. And uh, sometimes it's maybe at Brandon's uh, unfortunate outcome, but it's always entertaining to see the <laughs> charging experiences that Brandon has and shares on YouTube. So uh, with that, thanks so much, Brandon, and uh, we'll talk soon. See you guys next time.